I see people like even, you know, in a store or yeah, you know, they cringe at the side a sight of a child. And as I was saying to you earlier, I feel like in the United States we're always rushing to go somewhere else and we never are where we are. And I and I think it's this is the same with childhood. It's like let's let's hurry up and grow up. It, we need to get through this horrible stage so we can get to what? Hey, Joyful Warriors, Tiffany Justice here with Moms for Liberty, and I'm joined by a guest that I've had on the Joyful Warrior podcast before. In fact, I spoke first to Natalia Morocco in uh, December of 2021. You can follow Natalia on Twitter, Apple to Zucchini. Um, she is a mom of two children, I believe, and if I remember correctly, yep. I think then when we were chatting, they were, um, gosh, I want to say maybe 11 and 6. Does that sound about right? Um, Seven, yeah, close, close enough. (laughs) And and, and so now we're we're two years later. We're going to chat a little bit about New York City, uh, how the kids are doing. School's about to start there. And then we're going to chat, and and I'd really like to start talking with you, Natalia, about something you and I um, both have concerns about. And that is the fact that it seems like right now in America, we treat adults like children with safe spaces and, you know, words that can't be said and conversations that can't be had. But then with kids, uh, everything's, you know, fair game. It's like we treat kids like adults and we're rushing them through childhood, as you've shared with me. So welcome to the Joyful Warrior podcast. And um, you are a true champion for kids. So we're excited to talk with you this morning. Thank you. So are you. Thank you. Thank you. So what's going on? Are you guys ready for, for schools in New York City? No masks this year yet, right? No mask mandates. Okay. That does not mean no masks because we still have a population that is captivated by the New York Times fear machine. And so you see tiny tots who are wearing masks outside inside, you know, all day, children whose faces we've never seen. Um, I actually just got a text from a friend up in Northampton, Massachusetts, who was just bereft because school just started and she had a family over for uh, coffee and they brought their children with them. Everybody was wearing cloth masks. The three-year-old was wearing a cloth mask and the mother was giving her bites of muffin between like pulling down her mask in August, 2023. And my friend said, what do I do here? Like, this is never ending. Man. I mean, the cloth masks, especially, right? You know, I went back and I listened to the podcast that you and I did, uh, in 2021, right before 2022 started. Um, masking was still being required, uh, in all of the New York city public schools. And, and I listened as you shared with me that, there were kids who were literally masked from the moment they got up and, and that they would be walking down the street outside and then they would go to school and be in school until maybe five, six o'clock in aftercare. And they were forced to wear a mask that entire time. And, um, We've talked before about children are very compliant and they follow directions. The cloth masks never worked. There was never any evidence that the cloth mask worked. So for me to hear that there are cloth masks being worn still in 2023 is just shocking. Um, My daughter's best friend has been wearing a mask in school. She's the last child in the class. 
um, to wear a mask. They're nine years old. They're going to be in fourth grade this year. I've tried to talk to the parent who's a lovely, wonderful, kind human. And, you know, I just said, it's time. I mean, look, look around. Everybody's okay. Nobody's died. Nobody's had severe illness. Let her go to school without a mask. And she said, but she's not vaccinated. I just saw a commercial by the uh, American Academy of Pediatrics um, encouraging childhood vaccination for COVID. And one of the things that we very much saw right away with COVID, and, and, and we'll talk a little bit about Europe too, because schools were open in Europe. Schools, as I told you, in Florida, we had school districts that were forcing masks, and then we had school districts that were not, and we were not seeing any difference in transmission in those schools. And we know that kids, by and large, were unaffected by COVID. They would get sick, but they would get better, right? And I know that your background is in health and nutrition. And we've talked a little bit before about kids need to be exposed to different things, right? They need to be, they need to move, they need to be, uh, eat healthy food, but they also, the exposure to different pathogens and getting better is good for them. It's important. It, it, it inoculates their immune system so that, you know, people get confused sometimes. They think, well, you know, um, exposure to like antibacterial gels, like that's, you know, that's good. Like, you know, using that to kill bad bacteria. None of it is good. Like they should be spending as much time as possible outside, playing in the dirt, swimming, um, climbing trees, taking manageable risks, the kinds of risks your grandparents took. And by the way, I think that one of the things that we can talk about this later is to, you know, Michael Pollan has talked about how it's important to eat foods that your grandparents would recognize. If you want to eat junk food like French fries, make them yourself. I mean, I know that's aspirational. Nobody, nobody lives that lifestyle anymore. Maybe the Amish um, or, you know, the gonna, Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to lie. Every once in a while, you know, McDonald's French fries make it. We into all my do. Food. And, there's, and <laughs> yeah. there's no shame in it. I guess it's aspirational. It's a good thing sure. to keep that as a North Star. Like um, it, it kind of keeps you always coming back to the middle. But uh, the things that our grandparents did, like, the, the, the knowledge that our grandparents had about what were healthy and unhealthy exposures are kind of the things that are still true for our children today. But we've created an environment where we're afraid to expose them. Germs are bad. Like it's a complete misunderstanding of how our bodies work. Um, just yesterday I was at the playground with my daughter and I, this is true. I, I, you cannot make this up. I went to get a drink of water at the water fountain and this little tot, she was about four or five, went, ew! And I was just, I thought maybe I'd made like a funny sound, like a slurping sound. So I just looked at her and go, what's ew? She goes, there are germs in there. And I was like, no, it's just water. It's okay. And I pressed it down and I showed her again. And she was horrified. And she ran to her mother and she's like, she drank from that water fountain. And the mom's like, don't touch that. There are germs there. I mean, you can't, like, it sounds like parody, but it's actually true. This is like, we've made these children afraid of normal routine experiences and encounters that actually make them healthy. Um, and that's what worries me so much. I so also, I know have, it, uh, I also yeah. have an, a child with food allergies. So okay. I, you know, so there, I have this unique understanding of this because um, part of the reason for the rise of food allergies is the increased exposures to, or this is the theory, right? We don't know for sure, but it, this the, the, one of the contributors is increased exposures to chemicals and antibiotics that modify our immune system 
and also a decreased exposure to farm animals and dirt and um, a smaller nuclear family with just like one kid, you know, or two kids as opposed to like a family of seven where everybody's on top of each other and helping each other develop. I always, I always think that's funny because I have four kids and sometimes people will say to me, well, your kids are, you know, at any given time, there's a kid who might have a cold or if there's something that comes in the house, everybody, it kind of cycles through everybody. So people will sometimes say, it seems like you always have a kid who's sick. I'm like, it's just normal. They play sports. They hang out with their friends all the time. You know, they get sick sometimes, but they're healthy kids and they get better. And in general, we don't do a lot of medication. You know, we drink a lot of fluids and we try to eat in a healthy manner. So for moms who are are listening right now and they would like some tips about helping their children to develop healthy eating habits. I know that's something that's really, that's, you're very passionate about. So can you help give us a, a few tips about how to encourage your children to have a, a healthy, balanced diet? Yeah. I mean, I think eating at home and together is probably one of the most important things. Um, cooking, cooking together whenever possible, um, looking at the manufactured goods and seeing how they package things and how they make things appealing by, you know, putting in like colorful colors I and mean, you do the same thing on a platter of fruit. Like I'll arrange watermelon, grapes, things that like contrasting pretty colors, fresh, beautiful fruit. And I have to say, like, if my kids have friends over, that would be the first thing to go. And in fact, we had an end of year party for my last year third grader. And I suggested that we make fruit skewers. And she was like, nobody's going to eat them. And I said, those are going to be the first things to eat. Not the chocolate muffins, not the croissants, the fruit skewers. And they were gone within 10 minutes. I said, yeah. look, it was just pretty watermelon, pineapple, you know, a grape, a strawberry. Kids want this stuff. You just need to give it to them and package it and make sure it's fresh and, and good and, and try to cook together. Anything you make at home is going to be better than anything that's packaged. So, and you know, kids don't, love don't, to cook. I mean, they really do love to cook. And chop. Yeah, they, yeah, they liked and they like to be a little messy. And so I always know when the kids help me cook, it's going to get a little interesting, right? When the tomatoes yeah. get opened or whatever it is, it's going to happen. You know, we're going to we make tomato sauce and meatballs together, but they love to get their hands in there and they love to, you know, um, they love to explore. And then they really have a sense of pride in eating the food that they make. Um, yeah. and it, right. And, and, and then yeah. sharing that with others. So I think that's a great idea. And don't be afraid of salt and don't be afraid of olive oil or spices. Like these things are not necessarily part of our culture, but we need to bring them back. Um, like for me, there's no such thing as too much olive oil. We use grass-fed butter. We use things that don't have a long list of ingredients. Um, and as long as you do that, you're you know you don't need to judge yourself. Like it doesn't mean you have to be perfect. Don't make your kids feel ashamed of the fact that they eat takis here and there. Just try to keep bringing it back to the middle. Takis. I'm not a Taki fan. I don't get it. I don't like it every time. And every time they want to get them, I, you know, they're like, here, mom, have one. Cause I think it's funny. I think it just like burns my taste buds or something. It just, and I'm Italian. So I'm right there with you with the olive oil. I love olive oil. I've grown up, you know, using olive oil to cook with all the time and, and, you know, on bread and different things. So we're big mm -hmm. olive oil fans. So you did but some there's so much bad messaging. My husband's mother lives in the UK. And she's got these big bats of canola oil and vegetable oil. And I, you know, I bring in like big dark bottles of olive oil because you don't want it to be exposed to light because it goes rancid. 
Yeah. And she's like, we can't cook with that. And I'm like, no, you have to, you, you need to use the real stuff, like the canola oil. That's all like part of your culture. Like it was a cheap oil that, you know, you guys have had for many years and are used to, but you do need to make a change. This is the healthier way to go. So olive oil moms, if you're listening, don't be afraid to cook with olive oil. You really can use it for for a lot of things, including baking, to be honest with you. They have mm-hmm. milder versions of it that don't have like a strong, robust olive flavor. Um, so you're right. I use olive oil in my home primarily as well. So coconut oil, butter. Coconut, coconut oil, oil, yeah. yeah. Awesome. Avocado oil. Awesome. So um, you did. You just said your your husband's mom lives in the UK. I think you did some traveling this summer. So are you seeing any differences between um, kids in America, right, coming out of COVID, um, and just kind of Americans in general versus the different places that you were able to travel? Yeah, um, I think that there's a reverence for families in other countries. I know England. I mean, we've spent a lot of time in England because my husband's English and my my uh, sister-in-law and her children are there as well. Um, they they had some you know lockdowns and they're they're having their own reckoning. <clears throat> but um, there is a reverence for children that does not exist in this country. Nobody is trying to rush you know childhood along. Like you see kids. They're, they're, they seem to be pretty happy and, um, uh, you know, you experience it like even in retail environments where like a child, you know, makes a mistake or drops something, the English don't really get particularly upset. And I feel like my kids are more relaxed when they're there. Hmm. Um, it's, it's a different experience. Uh, we went to Israel as well. And again, like they look to the children as, as the future and, you don't rush childhood along. There's, you know, playgrounds everywhere, green spaces. Um, and you come back here and I, I see people like even, you know, in a store or yeah, they cringe at the side, a sight of a child. And as I was saying to you earlier, I feel like in the United States, we're always rushing to go somewhere else and we never are where we are. And I, and I think it's, this is the same with childhood. It's like, let's, let's hurry up and grow up. We need to get through this horrible stage so we can get to what, you know, that's kind of my experience. I I, I totally agree. And as I said before, I just think we treat adults like children and children like adults. And we're seeing that even with the content in the schools, I know you are aware of Moms for Liberty and a lot of the things that our moms have been seeing in the schools. And the question just really is, is coming back to why are we exposing children to so much adult content, so many things that you know, there's so much time in life and childhood is such a small portion of that time. And so the idea that we're not nurturing that time in a child's life and the important developmental milestones that are happening, I just, I mean, the least interesting thing about an elementary school student should be their sexual orientation. The idea that we're talking to, you know, six, seven, eight-year-olds about sexual orientation just blows my mind. They're still losing teeth. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they believe in Santa, you know? And it's, like, it's a time for, to read A Wrinkle in Time. Like, I remember, I was six when I came to this country, not speaking a word of English, and uh, books, well, first it was TV, but TV was so, you know, innocuous. It was like Charlie's Angels and Gilligan's Island and the Flintstones, and I learned English by watching them and listening and meeting the children, uh, you know, in my Brooklyn neighborhood and going to school, but... Um, when I became addicted to, to TV and my parents took the TV away and pretended it was broken for three months, <laughs> books. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it ended up being in the back of our car and, and turned up miraculously three months later once I started reading books and appreciating them. But 
um, the books I turned to were, you know, the classics that really help, you know, nurture your imagination. And I've read these books with my children now, and they still love them. They still hold up. Why aren't we reading books like Caddy Woodlawn and A Wrinkle in Time? And I mean, even the V.C. Andrews books that are pretty racy, like they're kind of interesting for teenagers. Like they, 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 my mother was reading them at the same time I was reading them. So we would have conversations about them. Um, it just, it just seems like we're trying to um, deaden their imaginations. And- what I have seen, I'll be honest. Um, and, and I've, I know more about some of the books that are in some of these libraries than I ever could have wanted to at, at a, this past Monday, I, I went to my own home county school board meeting. We have a chapter of Moms for Liberty here. I'm a member of the chapter. Um, I don't run that chapter. I'm a member because um, I'm a mom with kids in school. And um, some of the experts they were excerpts they were reading are just shocking. And and I'm not going to lie. I mean, we're talking about some very very heavy topics: rape, incest, pedophilia. Um, in these books, um, first person account, kind of like you know it, 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 that it's happening in the book as you're reading it. Um, and it's shocking to me um, that that's the type of, of, of content. But then I have to be honest, I go back and I look at some of the authors. And Natalia, these authors have experienced adverse childhood experiences. A lot of the times they're writing these books as some cathartic way to deal with that trauma they've experienced in their lives. But the question really is, does every child need trauma-informed care? If one child is abused, does the other do the other children need to have an in-depth understanding of that abuse? And I have to, you know, you have to ask yourself, why, why would you want to do that? Why are we not safeguarding the children and trying to help the, the abuse from not happening to begin with? It, it's just, it's hard to understand right now. It is. I, I mean, it's, I, I frequently said that we fought to reopen schools, um, but we never really reopened them. Like they're kind of dead. Like I kind of look at our schools and go, we lost that battle. Well, you um, look at the absenteeism. I mean, so tell me about that. What's that been? So what's it been like in New York City um, since we spoke last at the end of 2021? How are the schools doing? Have uh, most of the kids come back to school in person? And what has the attendance rate been like? Um, my principal at our elementary school, which is a very coveted school on the Upper West Side, said that she had never experienced more absenteeism than she did last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and she said it wasn't just, you know, a certain population. It wasn't, you know, in the past, um, I think the children in temporary housing were the ones who were, you know, more frequently absent. But she said it's not like that at all. Now it seems that families have gotten the the message that school is optional. So they take their kids out to go on vacation. By the way, we do the same thing. We missed the last week of, of school in June. And, you know, we took our kids abroad because we had to get to a program. Um, I think in the past, we probably would have thought twice, but um, it, it, it isn't strictly necessary. Well, first of all, there was also um, a, a, an attendance requirement in the past. I remember that you couldn't be absent, you know, more than a certain number of times in order yeah. to, you know, get into your favorite middle school or whatever. All those those requirements are gone. Um, in the UK, uh, parents can't take their kids out of school to go on vacation. They actually get, I think, financial penalties. Like they literally, can, they do not allow it, and they really do stand behind their words. Um, so it's been it's been very strange. Um, there's been a huge shift. In uh, just the the school makeup, many of the children 
whose parents could afford private schools, which I don't actually think are better, especially with the ideology. So I, you know, I, I think you're, you're trading problems um, and I, you know, I don't have the money for it, but I wouldn't spend the money on it anyway. But um, many parents have taken their children out and have moved them to private schools. Um, our children have lost many friends. Um, people have left New York City. Um, and now, as you have heard, we have a, a serious migrant situation here where, um, you know, I'm an immigrant too, so I understand people want a better life and I don't fault anyone for, for trying to get there. I just think that a country should have certain standards. Like for us, um, we had to go through like a very rigorous process before we were allowed into this country in 1977. Uh, we left uh, the Soviet Union. Uh, now it's Ukraine, uh, Odessa by the Black Sea, um, via Austria, where we were processed by one agency and spent a couple of nights there. Then we ended up in Italy and had to spend four and a half months there. I was five. My parents were struggling. Um, but th there was a whole you know, series of protocols you had to go to through to get into this country. Um, and, uh, and it seems like that, that system is broken. So you have this influx of students into the schools here in the city. Um, I've heard that the students, you know, that live in surrounding areas who want to enter some of these schools, including ours at this point, are being put on waiting lists because they're processing the migrant children first. I mean, it, it, ultimately, it, I think it'll probably work out. Children can learn and, and absorb information and be challenged and really step up to it. But I have spoken to parents who've worked inside classrooms as volunteers last year when there was a big influx of Spanish-speaking students. And one thing that really stood out to me was that they were saying that some of these children not only didn't speak English, but didn't know how to hold a pen yeah. and had never really been inside a classroom before. Like my friend Isabel had taken a child to the water fountain and the child didn't even know what to do. So there's a steep learning curve. And I think that these children definitely need to be supported, but I also worry about how far our children fall behind. So that's been interesting. I really want to dig into that for a second. I interviewed a mom, uh, Sheva, the other day, who um, her, her children go to um, one of the yeshivas in New York. And mm -hmm. the New York City Department of Education had uh, recently issued a report that said 26 of the 28 yeshivas were not meeting what they felt were the minimum standards for learning that needed to happen. And this mom was saying, you know, who gets to define what success looks like for a child in life? And that the outcomes of the students that were going to the yeshivas after they were graduating were actually better than a lot of the public school students. And so they were really questioning, right? What what values, what's important in school, and mm -hmm. are the NYC DOE outcomes any better uh, overall? And, and you know, and, and they said, you know, to be questioned in the way that they were, they just found astounding. So let's talk and dig in about New York City schools because, or New York City in general, you're right, I, I've been, all of us across the nation have been watching um, as we have this migrant crisis, uh, this influx of people coming into the United States looking for a better life and, and who can blame them? I understand that. I think, you know, it just shows that America still is a beacon of light for the rest of the world. Um, but that beacon of light is dimming a bit. And when I hear stories about the fact that like, 
some of the pools in New York City weren't filled this summer for children, is my understanding, because uh, there wasn't the money to do that because they were dealing with all these different issues. When I see parents, you know, saying, wait a second, this school that next to my child's elementary school is now being used as a housing shelter. And I really want to understand who are these people that are going to be right next to my children's school. You guys are just being shut out, though. It doesn't seem like anyone's listening. They're not. And, uh, you know, the fall in the spring of last year, they were putting uh, my single adult migrants in school gyms, specifically, you know, in underserved neighborhoods like Coney Island. And we fought back. I wrote an op-ed. I reached out to the city council person there. Um, but they, you know, they just were like, well, you know, the, the excuse was this gym isn't being used, so it's empty space so we can warehouse them there. And when we pushed further, like, why isn't the gym being used? Oh, there's no gym teacher. Oh so my instead gosh. of fixing the problem they have, I mean, these are, I, I, I haven't been to the school, but I assume that many of these children have weight issues and have predispositions that would actually make, you know, them more uh, severely impacted by COVID or any other, you know, disease, communicable disease, because chronic disease makes you more, you know, uh, vulnerable. Um, instead of fixing the problem and looking and going, hey, this, there's a gym and there's no gym teacher and, you know, 300 kids or whatever, they were like, great, it's empty space, let's use it. Um, and then they took away Randall's Island. Uh, my kids play soccer there. We have so little space in the city and every spring there's always like a lot of jostling for the different leagues to get space it's, it's very you know precariously negotiated they took away the space and built tent cities that seemed to be fairly permanent in the only kids space we had we have governors i, I mean if you're going to do it I, I don't think it should have been done they acted as though it was inevitable we have a humanitarian crisis at our you know at our feet and i'm like no you brought that you brought that into our city not every city uh, accepted this and why are we bringing more people into the most one of the most densely packed cities that has no green spaces for children and taking away the few that we have and by the way central park um, has not been used because i guess you know the affluent people on the on the upper and upper east and upper west side use it and enjoy it so they didn't want to take it away from isn't them isn't that nice isn't that nice that so the children's space the green space where the children would be able to go and exercise and play soccer and do all of the things that they do with the different sports leagues that's what's taken but the the tourist location that would affect the people living around central park uh, will be untouched um so can can you go play soccer there maybe that's the push can we go play soccer in central park how are permits. they doing that they do. They do in the North Fields and they get permits. But all of this is very, you know, negotiated. It's not, you know, you can't do it ad hoc. So, you know, they've assured us that every kid will be accommodated for the spring. But I, I don't believe that. I mean, I, I, I hope they're right. Um, but, you know, it was every excuse about why they couldn't take this, this place or that, that place. But it just seems like the kids' spaces are the first to go. And community centers. I know that in Sunset Park where you have a heavy, like, low-income Asian and Latino community, they took away their community centers. We don't care about the old and we don't care about the young. Mm. Um, I don't know what what we really care about. I mean, I've, I've listened to Nicole Maliotakis talking about, who I think is wonderful, um, talking about the fact that many of these new new immigrants are going to have voting rights. And I just wonder if this is all a plan to make sure that the current um, default, the, really deficient administration gets reelected. 
Yeah, I, I think it is. I'm not going to lie to you. I mean, it feels like that. And, it, and you know, as we watch our children get older year by year by year, um, you know, seven to six to seven is different than 36 to 37. I say it, uh, I'll say it a million times so that people understand there are important developmental milestones that happen for children. And it just doesn't feel like anyone in the United States, uh, certainly in, in government right now, uh, really gives a hoot about that. So, we fought like hell uh, to get masks off of kids. I know you did. I did. I knew during um, COVID, uh, Tina and I felt very, very strongly that Florida was going to be very important in order to be able to lead the nation forward. And we had the opportunity to be able to lay the groundwork to push back and to say it doesn't have to be like this, like it is in New York or Oregon or Washington or Michigan or Illinois, right? But I'm reading the news right now, and I'm watching as there is COVID again, right? And now I'm watching as some of the universities, uh, which still some of them have vaccine mandates, right? Um, yes. Are, are, are bringing masks back. A, a question, Natalia, I know for a time parents were not allowed to uh, visit um, New York City schools if they were not vaccinated. What What's the status of parents being able to visit schools right now in New York? As of last year, I, I can't remember, sometime in the fall, I think they, they did away with all of that. I, I think there, there are still schools at times where they enforce that kind of thing because pe people don't always know what the rules are. But generally, parents can go into schools. Okay. Are they welcome? You know, I mean, it changed everything. Our parent-teacher conferences are still, by default, online. Why? Uh, that's, uh, I think it's a union-negotiated contract. Oh, that's and, nice. That's nice. Yeah. So now you can request an in-person meeting with your teacher. But I'm not sure how happy the teacher will be to do that one in-person meeting when everybody else has said that they're okay with them being in their pajamas at home. You know, I just, I think that that's an opportunity for you to make an adversary of your teacher. Yeah. Um, it, it's complicated. And it, last year, um, I, I think you could do that last year too. And we actually asked for my older daughter's IEP meeting to be in person um, in September at a middle school, at her middle school. And I remember when we went in um, to meet with the counselors and the psychologist and um the psychologist was slightly older, probably in her 60s, and she was wearing a mask and she was kind of keeping her distance and said, you know, I'm, I, I'm fine with this meeting. The school year has just started, but I'm just going to sit here while you guys sit there. I was like, fine. And as the meeting went on, she took off her mask and got closer. And it was a really great productive meeting. And at the end, she said, I'm so glad that you requested that this meeting be in person because oh, you really made a difference. And I really appreciated the opportunity to speak to you, to you all and, 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 and meet in person. So I was like, that's amazing. I hope that, you know, this, this helps her feel more comfortable going forward. I don't know. I never circled back. But how sad for these teachers, too, that they've been um, told that their convenience, you know, of sitting at home and looking to a screen could ever replicate the quality, you know, and the relationships they they um, experience when people are in the same room and looking into each other's eyes and smelling the perfume or whatever, or talking about things outside. I mean, it it really is. It's really cheating teachers too, and I really feel for them. I understand why they're not happy and they want to leave the workforce. If I had to stare into a screen for two days for a parent, I would be miserable. 
Yeah, and and to be honest, parents, if you're listening to this, request the in-person meeting. There's no way that you can possibly really build the relationships that you need to, especially with an individualized education plan, right? When If you have a child that's struggling with different challenges and you're working as a team, you're an important part of that team as a parent, and you need to be there in person and make the and build those relationships. And Natalia, we tell moms all the time and dads, the first step when your kids are going back to school, go into school and meet the teacher. Build that relationship, right? Let them know that you are active and involved and you love your child and that your child can come to you with any issue that they are ever dealing with and you want the teacher to know that. And I think just setting that baseline and creating those relationships is really one of the most important things that we can do as parents um, and partners with the school system. You know, Moms for Liberty sometimes gets a bad rap. They try to say, oh, you, you want to destroy public education. no. Uh, we have no interest in destroying public education, but we want it to function properly. And that means putting kids first. So when I hear that maybe uh, parent-teacher conferences uh, being virtual still as part of a bargaining contract, that really ticks me off, right? That means that the union is is bargaining with the uh, with your district or with your the city, city right? Yeah. Your city. Mm-hmm. And you, with, for you, it's a city. For, for me, it would be the district. And they're being able to impose their will. And the question really is, Mayor Eric Adams, if you are listening, why? Why would you allow into a bargaining contract that parents cannot go and have a meeting with their child's teacher? Why would you even allow that to happen? Um, it's so it's so inequitable too, because it puts the burden on the parents to know that they can. Who's going to tell them that they can request the meeting in person? I mean, you kind of have to ask the right question. I wouldn't have known, like, but you know, I, I found out somehow. But it, they should. It, the, the 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 default should be in person. You know, 100%. somebody wants, I think it's great to have the online option. There are parents who can't get there and need to do it from their phone from work. Great. That's a great option, but it's, it's all backwards. I a hundred percent agree with you. Um, so in closing, Natalia, I see stuff coming back. I see the masks making a bit of a comeback. I see, um, you know, some schools shutting down. Uh, I think I just saw a school shut down for a week in Texas. Um, so, Never again has been what we have said, right? You have said it. I have said it. So many of our friends on Twitter that we've met, and Natalia and I met on Twitter, we've yet to meet in person, but we're going to meet in person soon. Um, But never again will we allow our children to be put into this position where they are treated like vectors of disease and um, and decisions that are made harm them the most. Never again will parents allow that. So what are your plans in New York? How, what, are, what are your suggestions for parents around the country on taking a stand and never again allowing us, our children to be locked down and masked and, and made to feel like they are unhealthy just because they breathe? Well, first of all, we've been working on a documentary for the past year and a half called 15 Days because they told us that they were going to shut our schools down for 15 days to, to slow the spread. We know how that turned out. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think the, the first thing for me has always been to not let them rewrite history. And you see them doing it all the time on social media. Thankfully, there are fact checks now, but you don't really have that like for the New York Times, you know, in print or whatever. But um, the documentary is something that we've been working on very, uh, very, very hard over the Good. past year and a half and looking forward to interviewing you for it as well <laughs> and, and talking yeah. about your story. But 
Um, I think that parents really need to go into their schools and um, get to know their administration and try to, um, no matter how adversarial they may feel, try to turn the situation around because ultimately we all need a good relationship. Nobody wants to hate their jobs. Um, I try to talk to checkout clerks at stores whenever possible. The more upset and miserable they look, the more effort I put into trying to talk to them because who wants somebody to be miserable in their job when they're spending most of their life doing it? So uh, we need to make, you know, school administration, our allies, like unions are, you know, these big, you know, monoliths. They're not people. We are people, and I don't think we should ever underestimate the power of a person to smile at someone or ask them how they're doing and genuinely listen to the answer and see where they can collaborate. And, and, you know, it may not be on everything. You know, I tried to reach out to our principal um, at our elementary school and just said, you know, this is going to be a rough year ahead. Here's what I kind of see coming. How can I support you? That's great. That's a building that relationship. I 100% agree. And I'll tell you what, I have a lot of disdain for the teachers unions um, and, mm-hmm. and Randy Weingarten and Becky Pringle and the things that they did. Um, I uh, don't think uh, that I will ever forgive them for keeping schools closed and manipulating the American public and creating the spirit of fear amongst teachers that they did. Um, but I agree that not every teacher, uh, even members of the union, agree with the things that they did, that the teachers unions did. And by building that relationship, maybe we can draw them back. Back to us, right? And maybe, the, and, and the next time that that Randy tries to lock our schools down, I think you're going to see a lot more teachers that say, "No, no, no, we're not doing this again." We saw how it affected our students. We are dealing with, you know, for years we will be dealing with the fallout of a, ge- a generation of kids who lost two years of their lives and learning. Um, and I think more teachers are going to stand with us. I honestly do, Natalia. If they try to lock us down again, so I'm hopeful for that. And I think it is because of building relationships that that will be able sh- to prevail. And sharing, you know, what we know, we spend so much time on social media, you know, watching videos and seeing, you know, articles. You don't need to inundate anybody, but there, you know, you can share a little bit of information and be calm and rational yep. and as an unemotional as possible. I just watched a Billboard Chris video from a few days ago where he was trying to talk to this activist about, you know, gender affirming care. And I think by being very calm and like just stating the data, not being ideological in any way, even though she was still, I think, in her own place at the end of the conversation, it didn't escalate the conversation. And I could see that there were some things that he said that got through to her. Um, I think we can, we don't need to assume that these people are impenetrable and that they can't be swayed. They were swayed by the ideology. That's Why right. Can't we we can them sway back? them back. So I think uh, we'll end on that note. I think that's excellent advice. Have more conversations, have difficult conversations and stay calm. Natalia, remind everyone where they can follow you uh, so they can get up-to-date information about uh, what's happening with kids across the country and, and the upcoming documentary. Sure. Um, RestoreChildhood.com has all of our social media links and also our Substack, which you know we try to update as, as frequently as we can. We're starting a book club, um, so you'll be able to find all the information there. Wonderful. Restore Childhood. I love it, Natalia. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you for joining us on the Joyful Warrior podcast, and I look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks, Tiffany.